Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. No my Haira Mai Kiara and welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge Lockdown Edition with Alison and Enika. Kiara Enika. Yoda Alison. So look, we're getting quite used to making these lockdown recordings, aren't we? <laughs> well, kind of. Um Hey, but look, I've got to say, I'm missing the studio quite a bit. I know, I am too. All those that fancy equipment and the lovely crew to do all the hard bits for us. And uh, what about the coffee and buns at the cafe around the corner? Yes. Oh, <laughs> they are a good thing. They're, they're those, you know, absolute decadence of the cardamom buns. Oh, beautiful. I mean, I guess yes. it's probably just about time to go across the Harbour Bridge. I haven't been over it in seven weeks. That's right, seven weeks without cardamom buns. Um, and you're allowed to come over the bridge now. So, Oh, thank you. So that's good. Yes, I, I give you permission. <laughs> well, look, in lieu of buns, we thought we'd focus on some coming-of-age books today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. You know, I love a bit of adolescent angst and, you know, growth. Yes, I do too. Look, I think it's possibly my favourite genre, um, but it's a, a style of uh, writing that has really broad appeal, eh? Yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah, I mean, coming of age novels in general, you know, they're looking at the sort of development of a youthful main character or characters. So the moral and psychological and intellectual development of those characters. And But they're actually popular with readers of all ages. And you do find coming of age novels um, in lots of different parts of the library. You know, it's not just in the teen section, is it? Doesn't That's matter right. Whether you're a teenager or, a, or, you know, well into your dotage. Um, you know, yeah. Lots of classics in the genre and lots of new ones coming out all the time. Yes. You know, there's those classics like The Catcher in the Rye and Siddhartha mm. and the newer ones, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It, they're just hundreds and hundreds of them. And, yeah, I've often sort of wondered what it is exactly that gives the coming-of-age novel its, you know, that allure. Um, and... <laughs> sort of laughing at, you know, as we know, I'm of a certain age. But do you think I'm trying to somehow relive my youth when I read these books, Inika? Well, it could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, depending on your youth, there's there's definitely some appeal there, isn't there? I mean, yeah. I, have to say I was pretty lucky. I was, um, I met lots of lovely people at my high school in my <laughs> high school years and they're pretty much BFFs, you know still which is lucky thank goodness they're very kind to me um and I think coming of age novels really remind me of that that really special time you know when friendship is the biggest thing in your life and and yes. nothing really comes close to that yeah it does I get a bit of a glow on for books that that give me those sorts of those sorts of feels especially yeah. in lockdown and yes and I wonder if that's I think might be um what's drawn me to them again and I think it's that point that we're at in lockdown I sort of wonder whether um the coming of age novel allows the reader to kind of process as aspects of their own youth mm. um either whether they're youthful and they're experiencing youth now or whether they experienced in in the past um 
you know, their youthful days might be well behind them. And um, I guess those years, you know, when you're between about 12 and 24 or so, they're incredibly powerful and formative, aren't they? They sure are. And everything has felt so intensely so much to discover and, and explore and we're kind of working out where we belong in the world and um, so many of those big events for us are life changing. That's right. At the time. Yeah, so resonant right through our Yeah, life. that's right and we're often, or I know I was so sort of vulnerable, awkward and angsty <laughs> at the time. Glad I can look back and laugh. <laughs> But, um, yeah, but it all makes for wonderful material for writers and readers. Yeah. So, look, let's talk about one. And we have both read this. I've just read it in the last week. Um, I'm going to talk about Beartown by Frederick Buckman, um, published in 2017, and it's translated from the Swedish. Um, It's available in hard copy and as an overdrive libby e-book and e-audio book. Now, Frederick Buckman will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. Mm. He's Swedish best-selling author, blogger and columnist, born in 1981 um, and perhaps best known for his novel, A Man Called Ove um, from 2012. Mm. But his books have been published in more than 25 languages, I gather. Now, um, this book, Bear Town, which um, its original title in Swedish was Bornstad, um, and it's been made into a couple of television series, yeah. one for Scandinavian TV, we love a bit of Scandi viewing, don't we, yeah. and um, the other one for American HBO. Oh, I didn't know that. Another thing that I discovered this week was... Um, the book, Beartown, was removed from the reading list of a high school in North Carolina just a couple of years ago mm. um, because parents described it as vulgar, graphic, and I love this, just unnecessary. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> that ties yeah. nicely with our conversation from last week, doesn't it? It does, really, yeah. Mm. I mean, I've got to say, the book, certainly does pack a punch um and one of the pivotal scenes i don't know if you feel the same i would say it probably needs a trigger warning because it does involve a a traumatic assault Mm. but as for saying just unnecessary i mean well you know these things happen don't they and often to to teen our Mm. our teen kids so let's talk about the book. Um, now, Beartown is a, a tiny community. It's nestled deep in a forest in the northern reaches of Sweden. It's struggling economically and it's slow, slowly losing ground to the ever-encroaching trees in the forest. <laughs> but um, down by the, the lake, which is usually frozen, um, there's an old ice rink and it was built generations ago by the working men who founded this town. And... Um, in this ice rink is the reason people in Beartown believe that tomorrow is going to be a better day than today. Mm. Their junior ice hockey team is about to compete in the national semi-finals, and they actually have a shot of winning. So all the hopes and dreams of this place now rest on the shoulders of a handful of teenage boys. Mm, that's risky. Cost- 
Yeah, I was just going to say it's possibly not a, a good thing, is it? Um, so, you know, this is a book I reckon that could be set anywhere, small town, whether it's small town North America or small town New Zealand, small town anywhere. All you've got to do is just change a few names and change the sport. I guess, you know, if it was here in Aotearoa, the sport would be rugby or, or league, I guess. Yes. But Do you it's think the vibes of um, Spricks? By, uh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, good good point. Um, it's a universal story, isn't it? And the story, I guess, looks at the community's reaction when the star of its beloved ice hockey team is accused of rape. Um, now, there's a great technique used at the beginning of the book. So um, the story begins on a, a late March evening when a teenager walks into a forest with a double-barreled shotgun, puts the gun to someone else's head and pulls the trigger. And so then the novel then is the story of how did we get here? Yes. So that's an interesting technique and um, probably fairly common, but where the author reveals the story's sort of apex or crescendo at the very beginning of the novel but the author doesn't provide any context to that and so it creates a, a huge level of suspense eh? you know and all the reader knows is that the novel's going to involve some sort of crisis between these two teens and presumably might lead to someone getting killed mm. and and then we get taken back a number of months to where the junior ice hockey team is about to compete in the semi-finals, um, and all those hopes and, and dreams. And then they win this pivotal match, um, and the boys celebrate with a drunken party that quickly gets out of control. Mm. And I guess that's where the universality comes into it, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and so a week after this terrible party, a young woman comes forward and says that she was sexually assaulted on the night um, and the alleged attacker is the star of the hockey team and he's from a very wealthy and influential family um, and the young woman has a, a witness but the, the young witness has been too terrified to come forward because of his family's immigration status. Yeah, it's a lot of marks, this book, hey? Yeah, it really does. It's really powerful stuff. So it's interesting that, um, you know, or, so then it goes on to, you know, what happens when the this alleged perpetrator is the golden boy of the town, the beloved son. Um, so it's, it's a story really of a moral failure of a town, I guess, isn't it? Um, mm. The you know the fragile human spirit, um, yeah, it's um, and then you've got unlikely heroes that step forward to um, to to save people and to save the town from self destruction. It's yes. um, this book was named one of the. Best books of 217, of 2017 by Goodreads. And I think they were really on to something there. Yeah, I think his star's only risen really since then, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Recommended hugely. Absolutely. Well, this week I have been reading. Um, now, this is this is not a coming of age um, novel, but I will tell you how it ties in. Um, mm. 
So I have um, finished this week um, More Than a Woman by Catelyn Moran, and this was published last year, 2020. You can find it. Uh, it's a memoir, and you'll find it in the adult nonfiction section and on Overdrive um, as ebook and e-audiobook. So for those of you who haven't um, read um, anything by Catelyn Moran before, um, she is a an English journalist and author, and um, she's if you've read her stuff before, you'll know that she's really very ex- successfully mined her own coming of age for really years and, and built quite a career out of it. Now, um, Catelyn was brought up in Wolverhampton in the Midlands in an eccentric working class family. She was the eldest of eight siblings, no, eight other siblings, so the eldest of nine actually. Nine, yeah. Yeah, and she was um, kind of home and library schooled from about the age of 11 or 12. Um, so she sort of brought herself up um, in some ways. Yeah. And she, yeah, she became a, won, a Wunderkind, Wunderkind journalist, mm. um, and she wrote for the Melody Maker music newspaper. Um, and she was dashing around the country interviewing musicians in the 90s when she was about 15, 16 years old. Quite amazing. And occasionally um, getting off with them. So, you know, <laughs> she was basically living my my vicarious teenage dream. Oh, good <laughs> on you. a former Brit yes. popper. Um, <laughs> now, Catelyn's now, um, she's now 46. She is a Times columnist. She's won lots of awards for her um, her journalism. And she's the author of three novels, two collected works, and two memoirs to date. Plus, she's written a um, TV series and a movie based on her books. So, now, pretty much all of her books deal with her kind of growing up. Um, her adolescence does feature heavily in both her fiction and her non-fiction. It was a, a very impressive adolescence, and it's given her lots yes. of fodder, really. Absolutely. And, um, yes, she has. Eh? And um, she's, um, she's always got a sort of funny, feminist, um, sex-positive slant in her writing, and she goes all in. Like, there's no holds barred with, um, with uh, Catelyn Moran. Yeah, that's right. I think you and I used the phrase toe curling recently. (laughs) And um, she certainly doesn't hold back. But, you know, I really admire her for that. And I love how she doesn't let herself get defined by any sort of shame about what are essentially normal thoughts and feelings. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's quite rare too. I think she's she's maybe a bit of a precursor in that way. I think lots of people have taken inspiration from her writing. Yeah. True. And her honesty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, her, her journey and her kind of exposition of her life continues with um, with More Than a Woman. So this is her latest memoir, and it takes a deep dive into 24 hours in the life of a middle-aged, middle-class woman in England, a white woman, I should say, um, reflecting on how things have changed since her first memoir, which came out in 2011, and that was called How to Be a Woman. So Catelyn's now mid-40s, um, and she's open enough to kind of take down some of her own previous um, strident opinions on a few topics, um, including things like Botox. So uh-huh. she's now had it after being vehemently against it, and she's now all for it. Um, she sees it as a time and money-saving life hack. So, <laughs> you know, like her honesty just keeps going, really. Yeah, good on her. Yeah, totally. She's um she's now a mother of um of two of her own adolescent girls, and she reflects in the book about how their teenage lives have differed and kind of aligned with her own her own growing up. 
Um, now, fairly rarely for Moran, who tends to kind of play everything for laughs, really, and there are still plenty of laughs in this book, um, literally lols all the way through. Um, there's a couple of quite heartfelt and poignant chapters in this book. Now, um, one of them is devoted to her oldest daughter's, eldest daughter's struggles with um, an eating disorder. And this this um, came as completely out of left field for um Catelyn Moran and her family because um, she herself is very big on body positivity and mm. pride and um, and um, you know positive self affirmation and all this sort of stuff. So she, it really was a surprise, and she's very honest about how that how that played out in her family. Um, I should say that it's with the full permission and encouragement of her daughter, who is now on the road to recovery. She wanted her mum to share that journey you know, hoping that it would help others in the same situation. And there's another chapter which looks forward to a potential future life um, that Moran is, is facing um, as a sandwich carer, so looking after both her kids and elderly parents as well. So, you know, that's a really common thing for women in their middle years that they find themselves caring very, on all sides. Yeah, very much so. juggling a full-time job often. yeah. And, all the other stresses of life, yeah. Yeah, no wonder you end yeah. up needing a bit of Botox. Well, that's right. It? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, if you've read Moran before, you'll know exactly what you're in for. I, I absolutely love her books and I love her moxie, but she is a bit of an acquired taste. Some people find her a bit full on. She's a lot. She knows it, um, but I love it. So, yeah, I recommend that you give it a go if you, if you haven't already. See what you think. Yeah. Oh, great. No, I'm going to definitely read this one. You've given it a great review. Well, look, I read something this week that I have adored, and um, it's called The Perfume Burned His Eyes, and it's by Michael Imperioli, uh, an American writer, published in 2018, and this is available in hard copy, but also as an overdrive ebook. Now, this book um, reminded me quite strongly of Daisy Jones and the Six by da- Taylor Jenkins Reid, which we've talked about on the show before. But to be honest, I love this book way more than Daisy Jones. So uh, apologies to, to da- Daisy Jones. <laughs> but it's um, set in New York in the late 1970s, and it's got a really um, interesting premise or hypothesis. And the story's told from the point of view of a teenager called Matthew, who falls under the wing of an unlikely mentor. And this mentor is a brilliant but super flaky musician, artist and poet, Lou Reed, Uh. of all people. So this really hooked me. I thought, wow, I've got to hear more about this. (laughs) So our narrator, Matt, Matthew, Matt, um, details the death of his estranged father and his mother's growing dependence on uh, prescription pills um, and an inheritance that his mum and he get that prompts the two of them to leave the confines of their working-class Queen's neighbourhood um, for an upscale apartment in Manhattan. And their upstairs neighbour in, in the Manhattan um, uh, kind of like hotel almost, um, is Lou Reed, who is at the point of an 
in his life where he's sort of veered rapidly from the grandiose to the paranoid, um, from the, the generous to the more menacing. Mm. And Lou Reed is deeply dependent at this stage on hard drugs. Now, he's living in this flash apartment um, that is basically like a rubbish tip. And... Um, Really interestingly, he's living with his girlfriend and muse, who is a trans woman called Rachel. And um, Rachel is very kind to Matt. She's a far more reliable character than the mercurial Lou Reed. And um, Matt becomes kind of a personal assistant to Lou, moving furniture around and helping him buy and sell amps and electric guitars and other sort of more dodgy, um, excuse me, dodgy uh, merchandise. (laughs) And Lou gives Matt his first alcohol and his first pills that are qualudes, the very 70s. Um, And they hang out in a lot of really seedy New York bars. And all the while, Matt is coming to terms with his feelings for his classmate, Veronica, who's an extremely alternative figure. She dabbles in witchcraft and other dark arts. Um, She's quite a tortured soul. Um, Matt is also trying to care for his mother, who's depressed and, as we said before, dependent on her pills. So the book's um, full of Matt's awkward angst and vulnerability. It's got some great comedic moments where Matt's trying to undertake dodgy deliveries for Lou, but he doesn't have a a driver's license. And then the guys he delivers to are kind of gangster types with no compassion for the anxious and innocent Matt. Uh Um, New York is um, a character in the book, really. It's edgy, it's grimy, gritty, probably very much as it was in the 70s. Matt kind of reminded me quite a lot of um, Holden Caulfield, although I don't think he was as cynical and wisecracking. Um, I don't want to go into too many more details about the story arc or where it takes us, but I put it this way, I absolutely motored through the story and I could almost hear Lou Reed's music while I was reading. You know, I could hear, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. <laughs> um, you know, there's heartbreak and loss and, you know, and I motored through the book and I was left absolutely gasping. Um, and then after I'd caught my, be- my breath, I was felt left sort of deeply reflective Mm, um, yeah. Now, th- th- for those wondering about the author's connection to Lou Reed, he did know Reed vaguely, um, but not as a teenager like our main character, Matt. Um, he met Lou Reed through his film work because um, Michael Imperioli is uh, an actor um, as well as a musician, writer, director. He was in The Sopranos. Um, he played Christopher Moltisanti, um, who was a great character. Um, was, yeah, one of the best in that series, yeah. Yeah. So he'd met Lou Reed through acting and then all, more importantly through the Buddhist community. Who knew? Um, so the relationship is 
between Matt and our character Matt and Lou is fictional, but there is a lot of truth in the story. I did just want to mention that Lou Reed's um, girlfriend, Rachel Humphreys, was a real woman, a real person. I mean, she was, um, I think I'd said she was a trans woman. She had Native American and Mexican ancestry. Sadly, she died young in 1990, but Lou had already sort of discarded her by then, and she was living in obscurity. It must be just an awful experience to be discarded by a rock star. Um, And it's very sad that not much else is known about Rachel Humphreys. But the great thing about this book is that it does tell part of her story. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so a really fascinating book. I highly recommend it. You come up with some amazing gems when you go browsing in overdrive, Alison. I'm in awe. Oh, I know. It's amazing what you find. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, um, as I said, I've been mainly trying to go for comfort reads in lockdown. So I actually read um, a teen book um, a couple of weeks ago. And this is a New Zealand um, book published just this year in July called Falling into Raro Henga by Steph Matuku. Now, you find this in our teen fiction collection and our Māori collections, and it is on Overdrive as an e-book. There's a little um, cue on it because it's so good. Now, this follows the story of Tui and Kai. Now, they're 16-year-old twins. So Tui's a bookworm and a high um, achiever um, at school, but um, she's a bit of a loner. She's helped to care for her mum since their dad left the family about five years before. Um, So she's carrying quite a heavy load. Now, her twin, Kai, um, is quite different. Her brother, he's um, really social, he's very mischievous, and he's really creative. He's actually a songwriter. Now, he really misses his dad, and he wishes that he could come back to the family, even though life with his dad was actually very unpredictable and quite tough on Mm. the whanau. But he keeps those uncomfortable feelings under wrap for the most part. Now, the real world disappears in this book and the mythical takes over. Mum Maya is swallowed by a vortex that takes her deep into Rarohenga, the Māori underworld. This is described as a place of infinite levels, changing landscapes and some untrustworthy characters. So Maya's been kidnapped by her ex-husband. He's sort of mustered some dark magic and she's trying to bring her back to him. So Tui and Kai follow her down the um, vortex. They go following her trail. They receive guidance from Tipuna who've gone before them and they have to outwit lots of mischievous and mysterious characters along the way. So you get you get um, extinct uh, fitu birds um, coming into the mix. You get um, turehu, um, fairies. You get um, underwater goblins called uh, Ponaturi, that's one I hadn't heard of before, mm. and there's lots of Atua or gods who come to help and hinder along the way too. Now, I absolutely loved this book. It had so many marks for me. There was a really authentic sister-brother relationship, you know. There was <laughs> these scenes where they get peed off at each other and storm off and leave the other one in the lurch. Um, and then later on, you know, they see that they actually need to work together and come together and use their strengths to kind of make it out the other side, really. And there was this really nice um, kind of nuanced undercurrent around the circumstances around their parents' relationship. It was just pitched so perfectly for the audience, you know, not too heavy, not too light either, just right. Yeah, really well-placed, heaps of thrills and adventure, but also these quiet, reflective moments, um, which were all kind of tied together beautifully um, by Māori kaupapa and the settings and characters of mythology. 
I learned actually heaps from this book. Um, I'm really embarrassed to admit that I'm quite behind on my Maori mythology. I didn't haven't gone too much past the old Peter Gossage mm. picture books, which I'm embarrassed about. But um, I am going to finally pull to the top of my to-be-read list um, Purako, which is an um, an adult book. Uh, it's called Purako, Maori Myths, retold by Maori writers, and it's edited by Witi Ihimaira and Fiti Hereaka. It was released in 2019, and I really need to read it, so that's really whet my appetite for, for reading more about Maori mythology. What a fabulous recommendation. Good on you. I'm loving that. Yeah. Oh, well, look, that has been particularly good. That's um, certainly one that I I need to, to look at as well. Now, and um, it's very possible, I do believe that our top 100 for this year is going to have some goodness related to Steph Matuku as well. Oh, so watch, eh, watch this space. Um, yeah. Now, where are we up to? Look, um, well, I this... think, you know, we were thinking about the fact that coming-of-age novels, you know, they're not a new thing, are they, Alison? They've been no. around for a long time. That is exactly right. They've been um, – there's a lot of discussion about when they actually started because then you get the – there's a school of thought that says there's a there were precursors to the coming-of-age novel. But um, – a lot of people say that the first one was said to be written by that great German literary figure, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, mm-hmm. and it um, was called Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship, published in 1795. Amazing. But, of course, people will argue, you know, well, what about the precursors? And then there were lots of examples in the 19th century, like your sort of Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, you know, by the Bronte sisters. Mm-hmm. We can find and those in the um, in the always available classics collection. Hey, it's a yes. great place to go to find lots of coming of age, classic coming of age novels. Yes, that's right. And then there's the newer ones. Um, for example, one we've talked about, um, Washington Black by S.E. Edukian, mm-hmm. um, 2018, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So it's a it's a huge genre or subgenre, really, isn't it? There's just mm. hundreds and hundreds. I think we might have to do another show. Um, yeah, we might need to do a part two about these. Yeah, I reckon we should. <laughs> but look, um, what I'd like to say is, don't grow up, people. It's a trap. Um, <laughs> but by all means, read some cool literature about the process of growing up and coming of age. So until next time. <clears throat> Excuse me, as I have a frog in my throat. Happy reading. Haerera, kakite ano. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 